Coming up on this week's show, a huge stash of sealed retro games is found. Nintendo say goodbye to the Wii U and the 3DS. And we go in-depth on the history of Mortal Kombat with David L. Craddock. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every Friday with our good friends at Bitmap Books. Now, a book that's coming out from them that was formerly a two-book set, A Gremlin in the Works, the story of Gremlin Graphics, now being offered as a single 560-page volume. So if you're a fan of their games, a real in-depth look, and you can check out that book and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 315, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to this week's podcast, the show that takes you behind the scenes on classic video games, chatting to the people that brought the games to us back in the day, the people that ran the companies as well, and also people that are covering this incredible industry that now, of course, is the biggest entertainment industry in the world. But it all started from very small roots, so that's what this podcast is about each week. And, of course, we'll keep you up to date on everything that's been happening in the world of retro gaming and technology over the last seven days. I've got to say as well, a big thank you to everyone that got in touch last week, Joe. Hoping that me and you have recovered from COVID. We didn't even mention that last week, but I think we're both on the men now. Did we not mention it? I can't. I can't remember. Oh, did no, we, we, we mentioned, mentioned we had it the week. Oh, before we mentioned we, we had it. We were, I, I am. I'm fully recovered. I am. You yeah. know, and it finally got me after like two years. So. That's really nice. I didn't know people had reached out, so that's really nice. Thank you. But yeah, I'm feeling much better. We didn't better. mention it last week. Yeah. <laughs> COVID completed it, mate. Yeah, done it. We're done. <laughs> so, uh, we're in the club with we Ravi are, now. <laughs> yeah, we are. Yeah, all, all three of us got our badge now. Um, but yeah, so we're feeling a lot better now. Thank you very much for all the messages. Um, we, we forgot to mention that last week. But we are on the mend, and actually I'm quite pleased because uh, we're going to be doing something this weekend. Uh, going to an event on uh, Saturday, which will be tomorrow, you know, when the show comes out. We're heading up to uh, Doncaster. Yeah, have you guys been to... Donny or Doncaster before I've never actually been but I've heard I've heard good stuff about the dome which is one of these kind of 90s or 80s domes that you used to get yeah yeah I've I've actually so we're going to the Doncaster games market which I've been to on my own now well, not not on my own. I've been with like other friends and my wife. I've never been with you they guys. They don't count, Joe. Um, I've been about five or six times now, actually. And you know, it's it's really fun. It's just like the expos that we you know that we do and stuff. But it's just the games market. There isn't any. Unfortunately, there isn't any like uh, games to play. It is just buying games. But that's where I thrive. <laughs> and it's just like hundreds of vendors, and it's 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 really fun, and it's always great when people come over and go. Are you? from the podcast on the retro hour and uh last time we were there the amiga addict guys were down there um you know who yourself ravi work with yeah and, yeah uh, so i'm going with that crew uh, yeah yeah uh, but we'll hook up of course yeah yeah exactly but yeah last time i was down there and um, they came up to me and you're like oh it's joe from the podcast and i was like oh it's the amiga addict guys <laughs> like so it's it's always really really fun but like you say it is in like an old 80s dome <laughs> you know like hall but it's cool it's it's fun i bet that adds to the charm does it yeah oh yeah like it's it's retro games of a retro feel absolutely 100 uh, the kind of tip that i can give if you're going to an event like that is take a small amount of cash 
and uh, <laughs> uh, hide your credit cards. Well, you, stuff. You, last time I went with a budget of £100 and I definitely doubled that because if it was like, we accept PayPal, like, yeah, I'm buying that then. <laughs> I'm, I'm determined to buy nothing, but I'm so going to come out with like a Vectrex and some weird stuff. I reckon, you know? I reckon you're going to come out with a Vectrex and Dan's going to come out with some Amiga magazines that he, he, he bought in the 90s. <laughs> and have thrown away since. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and a dodgy CDI game. Yeah, dodgy CDI. Yeah. See, that's the thing. This could potentially get quite dangerous. I was thinking about this. I haven't been retro gaming shopping for about two years since yeah, before COVID. I haven't, have you? And I so. said to my wife the other day, like, I actually get really disappointed when I go with people who don't buy stuff because I, I get that mm. thrill from them buying stuff as well. And I am devil on the shoulder when it comes to Dan because he's always after something <laughs> quite expensive like... I'm not going to buy anything, but if I see a Lynx, I'll pick it up. And then I'll go rooting for a Lynx everywhere. <laughs> like, so, yeah. So just, you know, keep your wallet safe. Yeah, Joe's always like, you know, that go for a lot more on eBay. I'd get it now while you see it. You know, you'll be kicking yourself <laughs> later. So, uh, you'll regret yeah, that if you don't put it on your <laughs> shelf. <laughs> yeah, I think I bought a 32X about four years ago. Still um, not yeah, played it. I haven't even plugged it in, don't think. Yeah, yeah, yeah not even used it. <laughs> Um, but you're right, so I, I think my wallet may take a bit of a battering this weekend, but actually it does mean that we're going to have plenty of stuff to show off on our patrons hangout that is coming up on Sunday this weekend, um, because we do this once a month with all our patrons, we get together, and that's kind of the fun of it, isn't it? We all kind of show off our pickups that we've got over the last month. Yeah, I, I, I love it when, you know, it's nice to show off and be like, oh, this is what we've bought, and you know, Ravi usually has something really cool that he's found in the charity shop because he just has the best look ever. But it's really nice when you see everybody else's pickups, which sometimes put ours to shame, if I'm being honest. Most of the time. <laughs> most, most of the time. Most of the time. Um, but yeah, always absolutely amazing time. Yeah, on the you know, the, the one thing I love on that is when someone picks up an item and goes, I've got this, what is it? And then everyone yeah. has to try and work it out. It's like a, a kind of quiz show or a kid's mm. TV show. Like, what have I got in the box today? It's <laughs> really good. We do the birthday cards after that. So, uh, yeah, we do this once a month with our patrons. It's coming up on Sunday evening if you'd like to join in. So all you need to do is uh, back us on Patreon. I mean, you can do it for as little as, I think it's like $3.99 a month is our lowest one, which is like, what, like three pounds so if you want to back the show on there you get invited to that on sunday night you can hang out with us virtually um have a bit of a giggle for a few hours and of course you get lots of other perks by backing the show on patreon you get the normal episodes early most weeks add free get extra bonus content in there as well you get access to our uh, bonus patrons only podcast that we do once a month called the after hours show and lots more too so if you want to join us on patreon um all the details are at the retrohour.com it would be wonderful to see a few new faces there on sunday night and of course all of our regulars who we love catching up with as well and for backing us on patreon you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming and let's give a big thank you this week to curtis baron alistair frankland charlie mustard and Alex Sulman, who all backed us on Patreon. Thank you so much for your support. Honestly, it means so much to us. And if you'd like to join them, like I said, all the details are at theretrohour.com. Now, we are going to be talking about Mortal Kombat this week. Now, I think it's fair to say, I know Rafi has spoken on the show before, that Mortal Kombat kind of terrifies you a little bit. But I think we're all big fans of Mortal Kombat anyway. Yeah, I think it's a great game. And I know, Joe, you're a huge fan of this as well. And uh, yeah. it had a huge influence on me you know we're talking about um mortal kombat with david l craddock who we've had on the show before and he does these absolutely amazing really detailed books about like the history of video games and titles and this one's really good and you know just hearing about the kind of roots of mortal kombat and how they digitize the people and kind of 
you know, develop the whole game is really exciting. I, th- I think for me, just kind of like growing up with Mortal Kombat, I think it was just, it was fascinating to see. You know, it was, it had so many things going for it. Like, obviously, like you say, the digitized graphics, which like none of us had like seen at this it point. It looks so real. It looks so real. How can games get ever look any better than that? And then obviously the gore factor and the violence of it and everything, you know, it was just, it ticked every box for like, every boy under the age of like probably probably 25 <laughs> do you know what i mean you know every lad or teenager just absolutely adored it so i'm really looking forward to listening it, to it was truly to adult gaming wasn't it mm, yeah absolutely it really tapped into what what sega were trying to do you know that kind of like tapping into the older market you know you know the people at the nintendo are now becoming teenagers and stuff like that so it, it in a way changed gaming it revolutionized gaming in a way well, it was one of the games that brought in the uh, you know the, the age ratings mm, yeah. in the video game industry. And it was a very controversial game when it came out. And like you said, I mean, I remember you know I talk about this with David in the in the interview as well. The first time I played Mortal Kombat was when we we're away at like you know Pontins, which is like a you know holiday camp. My mum and dad were watching some like crap cabaret act, and me and my brother, which joining this queue of like you said, I think it was probably about like twenty other you know preteen lads mm. all I, I thought, trying to get a go on it. I thought you said you and your brother were in a crap cabaret act. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't come for a few more years there. Um, but yes, I'm just trying to get on this machine and oh my God, look at the graphics. And everyone was, you know, no one was playing any other game in there when, you know, Mortal Kombat launched. And when you got that moment when you were the kid that stepped up to the joystick and you were taking on the other kid that had just beaten probably like five other kids in a row, it felt like you were literally stepping up to get your ass kicked, which generally did happen. But it was just such a revolution. And you look at that original game now, and I know it looks tame, but the first time, you know, you, you rip someone else's head off or, you know, you reach your hand in the chest and pull out the still beating heart. I'd never seen anything like that in a video game before. I'd only ever seen that in Arnold Schwarzenegger films <laughs> and Bruce yeah. Lee films at that point. Um, so it was, it was like an action movie, wasn't it? You know, it, yeah. it was amazing. And David, um, we've had him on before talking about his um, History of FPS Games book. He did the uh, Best and Worst Arcade Ports book as well. He is one of the most in-depth researchers that we've ever spoken to. And uh, this is going to be a three-volume set that he's doing called um, Long Live Mortal Kombat. Round one is going to be out very soon on Kickstarter next month. But he sent me a draft over, and this is already, I think it's about 750 pages, just talking about the first couple of Mortal Kombat games. That's how in-depth he's gone with his research. So he's got some incredible stories. If you ever wondered about the history and the development of Mortal Kombat, uh, those original couple of games and how it all worked, you're going to really enjoy this chat. David L. Craddock is coming up on the show in around 40 minutes from now. I say 40 minutes, because I normally say 25 and everyone's like, oh, 45 minutes after you guys have chatted about the news. I'll be a bit more realistic this week. But there is lots of new stories to chat about, so... uh, Here's one that's going to upset you, Ravi, as our resident Wii U fan. Nintendo are finally saying the long goodbye to the Wii U and the 3DS. Obviously, the consoles were discontinued a couple of years ago, but now the eShops are closing down this summer. Oh, yeah, that's that's tragic. You know, I, I, we've covered kind of eShops closing earlier in the year, and uh, I always find it really disappointing because I always think, you know, how much does it cost to actually keep these up and maintain it and like the wii u i think it's hitting around its 10th birthday now yeah Um, yeah 2012 yeah yeah so it's pretty pretty kind of retro but um man it's still got a lot of titles that are on the switch and it still feels kind of really modern to me yeah it's it's tough as well because 
Um, I'm not sure, but some of the titles that are needed to modify the game, uh, to modify the console and install Homebrew and stuff are actually on the store. So I don't know if there's any kind of hacks around that and stuff at the moment. Uh, I, th- I think there are a few ways, but uh, you do actually need a few a few of these titles to be able to inject codes and then open it up and uh yeah and you know you could be losing a, a lot of games what what do you guys think about it i i think it's interesting like so it's coming to an end late march 2023 so there's still a year on it however from the 23rd of may this year you will no longer be able to use real payments on it like credit and debit card payments on it and then i think is it from august this year you just can't buy stuff on it anymore you can't add funds to your you can't your add account, yeah. funds to your eShop account or anything like and, that. And it's so, 3DS as well, isn't it? Yeah, for um, 3DS and Wii U. So you can still download and stuff like that until late March. It's just you essentially, by sounds things, you won't be able to buy anything from kind of summer this year. But you hit the nail on the head there. Like it's ten years old, but it doesn't feel that old because of they're still releasing Wii U games that kind of went under the radar or failed because of the failure of the Wii U on the switch to this day because it's like mario party 8 came out on the wii u like you know i don't know how how long ago i don't know how early into the life of the wii u it came out but they've just announced a new version of mario kart 8 haven't they for the switch yeah and and there's, like, a, there's a few titles as well that are still just on the wii u that haven't made it over to the switch as and, well. I'm sh- and i feel like some of them will still move over to the switch because the switch is you know, the Wii U is the worst-selling Nintendo console of all time. It's sold at, like, 16 million. But then the Switch is the best-selling game, you know, Nintendo console of all time. So it's just, like, I think there's, there's still a lot. There's still, like, a... What's the word I'm looking for? A history? Like, a, a history, yeah. There's still a history with, with the Wii U there, like, that is still going to be kind of embedded into the Switch for years to come. You know, we're still going to see some of these games and stuff like that. But, like you say, obviously, a lot of people hack the Wii U. A lot of people use it it's a very good emulation machine but like you say sometimes you have to kind of hack a particular game by downloading is it brain training onto yeah, the Wii U. So, so brain training so, was the number one title on the Wii yeah. U store for a long time and uh <laughs> that was simply because of that but i think you can do it with the actual physical version as well okay so that's, that's probably going to go right up in price um yeah i think there's ways around it now but there's a thing called uh well, Wii U USB helper, of course, you need to have all the proper keys and title keys and do all that officially. We're not we're not like promoting piracy. But um, on there, you have a lot of the titles that are on the eStore, but you also have, importantly, the updates as well. So luckily, because of the kind of effort that people have put in, you're able to um, install some of the updates on the games as well and have it mm. updated to the latest version because that's what i was really worried about that people would buy a title on disc put it in and then not be able to do the update and not have the fixes or or not have like the extra content that came later on games and that's the thing i mean you know the wii u like it's weird because when that came out it was just literally months before the xbox one and the ps4 which still feel like especially because you know new xboxes and playstation 5s are quite hard to get hold of still the PS4 and the um, Xbox One still feel like quite current gen. I, I'm going to say it. We're going off on a tangent here, but I still feel like we're not in the next gen because I've got a Series X now. And literally, like, every game I play on it or buy on it are just Xbox One games that work on both. And it's like, my wife is buying me Elden Ring. And she's like, I can't find it anywhere on Xbox Series X. And I'm like, yeah, because it, it works on both. 
So I just, I, do, I really don't feel like we're in the next gen. And I honestly, like I say, Ravi said it, the Wii U just doesn't feel like it was that long ago. <laughs> like, it's just, it's weird just to think that it's, it's 10 years old and it's, it's going. You, you think of that generation with like SNAS and Mega Drive and stuff and 10 mm. years is a huge time, isn't it really? But oh God, yeah. It doesn't seem it now. Well, you're talking Super Nintendo to PlayStation 2, you know, like 92 to 2002, aren't you? Which yeah. is a massive leap. But I mean, you're, I mean, the Wii U wasn't the worst selling one, I think, you know, the Virtual Boy. Oh, probably, okay, it's yeah. my mistake, sorry. <laughs> it's sorry. a lot worse selling. <laughs> Thank you for Someone saving will point me that. Out, Joe. <laughs> so I thought I'd say it before we get the YouTube comments. Um, but yeah, you're right. It kind, of, it kind of feels like to me now that Nintendo are... Uh, <laughs> they kind of want to pretend the Wii U never happened. And I think you're right, all these games that they put a lot of effort into making for the Wii U, now they're just saying, well, look, let's re-release them so they've actually got, you know, an audience on the Switch. It does kind of feel like every big game on the Wii U hmm. is either already or will be out on the Switch, you know, in coming years. Hmm. Uh, but there is um, an interesting forum thread on Nintendo Life. Um, someone's actually gone through and listed all of the exclusives for the Wii U and the 3DS that are, you know, only available on the eShop, stuff that you might want to download. And actually, there's not that much. There's maybe around 25 for the Wii U. Okay. Um, 3DS is probably a bit more, maybe about 40, by the, you know, skimming through this list here. But yeah, I mean, it's stuff here, like, you know, Super Mario Advance 4, um, Super Mario Brothers 3, the unlocked e-reader levels. You've got Wii U Sports Club, which is actually, you know, quite rare um, to get on physical release. You've got Star Fox Guard again, which is another rare physical one. Um, a lot of the other stuff on here is stuff like NES Remix Volume 1 and 2, uh, Tank, Tank, Tank. There's stuff like a Wii U Panorama Birds in Flight. Ah, so looking favorite. at it, it's nothing <laughs> It's nothing that you're going to really be like, I'm gutted I missed out on that. Mm. That, that Birds in Flight it. is pretty cool, actually. <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> yeah, what what is it? I'm Wii, curious. Wii U gamepad um, to kind of look around at, you know, Birds in Flight. <laughs> oh, fair enough. <laughs> Does what it says on the tin. Well, I've actually got my Wii U set up here in my room next to me now. Um, you know, digging out my cupboard again recently. And, you know, in terms of graphics, I mean, it doesn't feel that far behind the Switch, does it? You look at something like Breath of the Wild on there, there's not a lot between them, really. No, not at all. And, like, Smash Bros on there is amazing. Like, uh, a Mario Kart as well, you know, you can modify it to, to be the deluxe version as well and stuff. I actually use it still, and it gets a lot of love as my main system. On my mm. on my TV at the moment. I was going to say it's pretty much your main system because you emulate on it, don't you, Ravi? And you only recently, Dan, renegaded it from your front room to your office, didn't you? Only like the last couple of months because you got PS Five, wasn't it? Yeah, I needed room in my mm. my home theatre setup. Yeah, so it went in the cupboard for a couple of months, and now it's back in my studio. Um, I've set it up in here. But again, I mean, it's a great system, but what it kind of feels like now is, you know, like you said, Ravi, it kind of feels like it's Nintendo were kind of closing the door on now and leaving it to the fans. And I'm sure that, you know, there is a big homebrew scene on there. And the 3DS as well, I was looking the other day, someone's actually ported um, a couple of Commodore Plus 4 games that I used to like to the uh, the 3DS as a homebrew. And I was kind of looking into, you know, it is actually quite easy to modern hack the 3DS now as well. So mm. it, it, it kind of feels logical that these systems are going to kind of, you know, fall into the homebrew and, uh, you know, modern community now. I bet it's brain think, you know, training on the 3DS as well, probably, that everyone's Which, I think I've got, on, I've got on cart, actually, I think, so I might be all right if I want to mod that. But, um, yeah, so really, I mean, the, the message here is if there's anything you desperately want off there or anything you want to re-download, you've only really got, well, a year to get anything re-downloaded off the store. You know, the, the end is nigh, which, actually, bearing in mind the Wii U is discontinued in 2017, it's actually been online longer than I thought Nintendo would keep it up, to be honest. Yeah, five but years, that's crazy. 
actually. Yeah, yeah. rest in peace with you and 3DS. If you want to read more about that and the uh, that list of exclusive games, I'll put it in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now let's sound like proper old farts here and uh, shake our fist at the young'uns. Apparently, Generation Z, who is like anyone under 24, I believe, is uh, more likely to apparently recognise Sonic the Hedgehog over Shakespeare, according to this new study, which I've got to say, actually... I think Oscar is probably more likely as well to recognise Sonic, if, if I'm being honest. <laughs> it didn't surprise me much, but yeah, this this comes from a recent study, which um, you you are right, it was 16 to 24-year-olds it was done with, um, and they got 1,800 people to do this study. And essentially, they got a lot of famous historic people and then a lot of video game characters, and they had to name who they were. And the results came in that essentially 80% of on average of the gen z people who knew knew who most of the game characters were with mario coming in at 85 percent um and then sonic coming in at 83 percent luigi at 82 and kirby at 80 percent and pikachu at 85 percent as well so pretty which surprises me because i, I kind of class them as you know quite retro characters yeah. if you said to me like fortnite or whatever <laughs> well, I'd have been well, like, that, that, that's the interesting thing all of those characters are from like our generation which you know from yeah. the 80s and 90s but you know they're still the probably the most popular game characters around um especially you know, pikachu as well yeah especially pikachu yeah. mario luigi and sonic i'm not too sure what kirby's been up to these days but you know he got 80 percent recognition there however this is where the celebrities come in so we've got Rosa Parks that came in at 72%. So pretty good. But then Shakespeare, our boy William Shakespeare, came in at 62%. Bill Gates at 67%. And then Winston Churchill at 48%. This, I think this has to be an American um, survey, right? Because Winston Churchill, all over all the banknotes, you're going to see Winston Churchill nearly every yeah. day. William Shakespeare in the UK. Yeah, but how many? We how had many... that forced down our throat at school, and I'm sure kids are still getting like it, forced to do Shakespeare. It, and uh, it yeah. doesn't say where the study was done, but I don't know. I think I, I I wouldn't be surprised if this is British because I can't imagine many Gen Gen Z looking down at their five pound note. To be honest, because it wasn't until I was much older that I actually kind of thought, who are these people? <laughs> notes you know did, did you guys have to do Shakespeare at school yeah but like not for like the entire time I was at school just yeah, it wasn't the full Shakespeare yeah, it wasn't a full Shakespeare class we took <laughs> thou we, art Joe yeah we, you know my mum my mum actually bought me the complete works of Shakespeare for the CDTV oh wow um, because I was learning it at school so of all of, you know it was exciting just to get a new game for my computer but god yeah Re- reading that on a crt <laughs> <laughs> yeah it wasn't fun but you know looking at this study here i've got to say i'm actually impressed uh, they're saying here that um yeah william shakespeare came in fourth at 62 percent of people recognized him that is only one percent less than dua lipa i'm gonna go ahead and say it i'm not too, sh- too sure who that is me neither <laughs> we're, we're, we're old and famous irrelevant. pop star with the young'uns oh who is it? so they're a pop star are they she is, yeah. She's she's like one of the most famous pop stars around right now. Well, you you um, you work on radio, Dan. Yeah, we play Dua Lipa <laughs> I, a lot. I was really worried it was like you know like the Dalai Lama or something. <laughs> like it was somebody really like important in history. Like you know, I was really like, oh, who is that kind of thing? Like, yeah, I, I, I think I think it's it's an interesting little survey, and I, and I guess this happens with every single generation. Like different mm. stuff becomes relevant and stuff, but. Oh, 
the Shakespeare one. You almost know Shakespeare. <laughs> that's that's the one that gets me <laughs> more than anything. Well, the fact that people are recognising, uh, you know, Bill Gates more than um, a pop star like Dua Lipa, you know, there, there is a there is a bit of hope there. I think isn't there, Ravi? So uh, yeah, it's an interesting little survey. Um, doesn't go too much in depth, but um, <laughs> if you want to have a little read of that, uh, well, I'm very proud of it. It's that um, jumping over the yeah. chair video that got Bill Gates to, to number one. Do you remember? All, all the youngins are watching that on TikTok. He used to do that. He used to in interviews. He'd go, "Oh, I can jump over an office chair," and then he'd do it in like one move. Yeah, look that up if you haven't seen it. I've never seen that before. Let's talk about uh, Square Enix then, because obviously I, I know you're kind of our resident um, RPG fan, Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, you love your 2D RPGs as well, and it turns out that they want to make more of these. Is actually a bit of a comeback for the 2D role-playing game. Yeah, so I'm I'm a massive, massive 2D RPG fan, you know, definitely in the kind of the SNES area. You know, I love like Final Fantasy 4, 5 and 6 and Secret of Mana and Chrono Trigger, some of like my favourite games of all time. I've got so much nostalgia for them. But this kind of comes off the back of Square Enix. Um, they're bringing out a game called Triangle Strategy, which I've not checked out, but they released a game a couple of years ago as well called Octopath Traveler, um, which was kind of like a pseudo sequel to Final Fantasy VI. It had a lot of the same development team and stuff like that, like, you know, 25 years later. And apparently they're both excellent games and they've got what they call two, a HD 2D is kind of like, you know, the style, the art style of the game. And they I, I don't know if you guys are looking at them, but they look absolutely beautiful, these games do. And yeah. They play just like, you know, the old school kind of like SNES RPGs and tactic games and stuff. And essentially, there's been an interview with um, Famitsu. I think Famitsu translated it, and it was on Square Enix Japanese YouTube channel where they're working, where they're interviewing the developers of Triangle Strategy who have revealed that the, the you know, the president of... Square Enix has essentially turned around and says he wants them to make more HD 2D SNES games, like style games. Mm. And essentially they've been looking at what games could they remake, you know, from the kind of like the heyday. Um, and they're, they're literally throwing out the games that I've just kind of mentioned. You know, they're looking at games such as Chrono Trigger and they're looking at Secret of Mana and... Um, Seeking Dendetsu and all these kind of games that I grew up playing on like, you know, SNES ROMs and stuff like that, which I absolutely love. But like, it's, I think it's really cool to see like a triple A developer, Square Enix, who don't just make RPG games, they make a lot of shooters and stuff like that. And they, you know, they, they obviously their modern Final Fantasy games are like, you know, the Final Fantasy 7 remake and Final Fantasy 15 are like massive, massive, huge 3D games of like, you know, Final Fantasy 7. I'd go as far as to say have the most beautiful graphics I've ever seen on the PS4. Like, they're absolutely amazing. But it's so awesome to see that it's not just like a division within Square Enix, it's the actual president of Square Enix is like, you know what, we're onto something here with these HD 2D games. Well, Let's see what we can revisit. They've actually um, like got the name HD 2D. Uh, so mm. HD slash 2D and mm. HD 2D are now actually mm. registered. Uh, for mm. Square Enix solely, so this looks like it's a whole area mm. that they're actually going into as a as a strategy to kind of, you know, remaster it in the, in this new way. Yeah, and I'm I'm all for it. I am because if a lot of these games, you know, that I'm going on about that came out on the Super Nintendo and stuff, didn't get, you know, they got a hell of a lot of love in Japan and they got a bit of love in America, but a lot of some of them didn't ever make it over to the UK or have really kind of limited releases back in the nineties in the UK. Um, and often limited releases in the US as well. So I think it'd be really good to see 
you know, to see them again on, on the Switch and, you know, the Xbox One and stuff like that. And it, honestly, like, looking at these images of Triangle Strategy, it looks real. That Those pictures look like a real-life, like, model that somebody's made, you know, with, like, little 2D sprites. Like a cardboard cutout. Yeah, or, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, you know, like a model railway set. It look, it just, oh... It, they pop out of the screen. It looks like it's coming out of the screen without, you know, without any trickery or anything. It just looks amazing. So, you know, I'm the all thing for that it. does it is the is the kind of focus. So, mm. on the edges of the screen, it loses focus, and it's got that really nice depth. Oh, yeah, you're yeah, right. That's it, how they, that's how they do it. And then it focuses on, even though there's so much dimension and there's so much going on, it focuses on what the characters and the yeah, buildings and it's are doing like and a stuff. kind of photographer's style mm. trick. Yeah, you know, yeah. Really nice. Yeah, really beautiful. Well, we've got lots more stories to talk about in a moment, including uh, this massive stash of factory-sealed games that's been found from an old game shop after 27 years. Before we do that, let's take a quick pause just to give a massive thank you to uh, one of our most loyal supporters of the Retro Hour podcast, and this is our wonderful friends at Future Publishing, who, of course, bring you loads of incredible gaming magazines, including Retro Gamer. Now, the thing is with Future, I mean, you know, we talked before, Ravi, that you know we we grew up with Future Publishing's magazines, didn't we? I remember reading like Amiga Power, Amiga Former, Edge, and stuff like that when I was a kid. I think the shelves so, were dominated with Future magazines when yeah. when I was younger. They were the coolest ones that you could get. And obviously, they've got some incredible titles today, whether you're into the new generation of consoles and PC gaming or the retro stuff like we talk about. I mean, they do, for example. PC Gamer magazine, which uh, you've been reading, celebrating the the golden age of PC gaming, actually, isn't it? Yeah, and it and it kind of keeps me up to date as well with the new stuff. But they always have like a a little heart back to the originals, and there's like really good research and stuff. You know, they've they've got a hands-on preview with the Settlers as well, and I don't know how many Settlers games I've seen come out over the time. Uh, Homeworld Free as well. They're looking at the Steam Deck, which is a really interesting bit of kit, and uh, the Matrix as well, which is like a, a bizarre matrix mmo that just won't die which is really interesting and you've got edge magazine that gives you i think you know the best video game journalism ever they go so in depth and it's all such a good read and actually they're talking about um, this massive new indie game that's really hyped at the moment somerville on the uh, cover of the latest edition of that they also do play magazine if you're a playstation fan and um, talking about final fantasy origin and actually there's a preview of the psvr2 which you know i've, I've talked about the playstation vr and you know, I've got I haven't used mine for about a year. When I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, Oh, that looks cool. I'm thinking I might buy one, I don't know. It, it looks pretty cool, but I've I've heard a lot of people are still saying the quest two is cooler. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. I am not convinced yet because it's not they've not said that Resident Evil 4 is on it yet. So, you know, that's the selling point for me. I, I think <laughs> I'm gonna take the quest to plunge at uh, some point soon. Oh, you I won't really, be able to get I, rid of me if you I, get that, Ravi. I really need to check out the uh, the VR world, yeah. And of course they do Retro Gamer that you know if you listen to our podcast each week, you need to be reading Retro Gamer magazine and the current issue uh, the cover feature The Evolution of Earthworm Jim. Uh, Dave Perry, Nick Brucci, Tommy Tallarico talking about the twisted journey of the iconic 90s hero. And they've also got the ultimate guide to pinball dreams as well. I think, you know, pinball dreams and pinball fantasies and Slam Till, I mean, still my favourite pinball simulators. You don't see many pinball games in the charts nowadays, do you? No, they were incredible games as well. So it's nice to get the uh, the inside story on Digital Illusions classic games as well. And um, they're talking about collecting Sonic games as well, like a collector's guide on that. They've got an interview, a six-page interview with James Rolfe, 
the angry video game nerd talking about rubbish video games and they're reaching 200 videos as well and there's a look at Paperboy they do a really great little feature where they take you back to a certain year and they're going back to where May 2005 in their Back to the Noughties feature so Retro Gamer Magazine I mean if you like our show you need to be reading it and actually we've got you an incredible offer now I will just say make sure you take advantage of this now. The amount of tweets we get in like two or three months' time, people go, oh, God, I missed out on it. Because we, we want to give you a chance to get three issues of your favourite future publishing magazine, Retro Gamer, PC Gamer, Edge or Play, for just £1. It's awesome. You know, I actually did this deal and and I got them and I kind of forget that I have them and they just arrive and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, free free issues for a pound. It's crazy. So uh, that saves you up to 95% on the cover price. Now, all you have to do, if you want to take advantage of this offer, do it quickly. And of course, you're going to be really helping out our podcast by taking advantage of our sponsors' offers. Head to this link, magazinesdirect.com slash retro hour. That is our exclusive link for you. You'll get three issues for just one pound, save 95% on the cover price at magazinesdirect.com slash retro hour. And a huge thank you to our mates at Future Publishing for their continued support of our show. Now, this video, Joe, I imagine when you watched it, um, it's probably got your heart beating quite a bit. Imagine we see stuff like this at the uh, the Doncaster Gaming Market at the weekend. This is <laughs> a massive stash of video games, rare factory-sealed Super Nintendo games in particular they're talking about here, that have been in storage for 27 years. This was a video game store that closed in 1994, and there are some absolute gems that they've discovered in here oh absolutely so this comes from this is game room uh, their youtube channel and essentially a video game store closed down in nebraska in 1994 and they packed away their entire stock into a storage unit and that storage unit has now been uncovered and there is a absolute treasure trove in there there is so many like Mega Drive, SNES, Sega Saturn, 3DO, Sega CD games. Like, it's insane what's in there. Because you got to think 1994 is, like, when the next gen was coming out. So, yeah, it was on the cusp, And, and there was it, yeah. so much going off with Sega. Like, there was the Mega Drive, the 32X, the Sega CD, and the Sega CD, you know, kind of, like, knocking about. And then, you know, you've got the Super Nintendo and the NES and still, like, the NES in 1994 still had a couple games coming out. But... They've got all these amazing games, but as they dig through it, they then get to the case of sealed Super Nintendo games, which I know we've discussed the value of sealed games recently, and there's such a huge buzz around them at the moment. And, you know, there's a couple of, like, decent games in there, but there is some absolute massive big hitters in there. You know, there's Castlevania Bloodlines for the Sega Mega Drive, there's Brain Lord, Breath of Fire 2... One of my favourites, Zombies Ain't My Neighbours, Sunset Riders, Contra Hard Corps, like just so many Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Chrono Trigger, Secret of Evermore, Final Fantasy 3. Insane, insane titles. And these games are selling for like well over a thousand dollars and a thousand pounds on eBay sealed at the moment. So the guy who's found these and got a hold of them, I don't know what his plans are with them, but he's hit the jackpot. Book a nice holiday, I imagine. Uh, or yeah, like, or, 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 buy, or a buy a house. Yeah. I can imagine that, like, you know, people don't see these as hugely valuable if they were retailers back then and stuff. And I can imagine there's, like, little spaces uh, full of gems and stuff that mm. people don't know about. And it will probably go on for years, people finding these uh, 
with video games and sealed stuff. Because you're right, at that point with all this stuff coming out, you know, the, the, the Sega CD and the 3DO, this stuff would have been like old hat, you know, and they would have just like had stacks, stacks of sealed games and stacks of uh, old oh. Genesis titles, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, and it's just, it's insane because it's like a lot of these games that I've just listed off as well kind of comes back to our story about Square Enix. Like some of these games are like, had limited runs in America. So, you know, like Chrono Trigger. And I mean, I don't know how limited they were, but you know, some of these, some, these are like Holy Grail games that people are like, you you know, you must have these games in your, in your collection for Zen to find them sealed is insane. But I, I, wouldn't it have been funny if it was like somebody who found it had no idea what they were and wasn't bothered and just chucked them all away. It but comes the, back but- to that, that Metal Jesus video from about four or five years ago where, he found somebody on Craigslist who Craigslist where a similar situation where a, a shop had closed down and unfortunately the guy had passed away and the mum had inherited it all and she had it all in like a barn and it turned out she was like burning them to like run like the heating for the farm that she lived on and oh, he God. came and she was like oh you can have them you can have them I've been chucking them on the furnace and it was like super Metroid and stuff like <laughs> Nintendo that. World Champion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Earthbound and stuff like that. Like she's just like, I've been burning them to you know to run the house. And it was just like he's you know insane. He was he had, he took like an entire car's worth. Like he paid for them. But it, it reminds me of um, there's an LGR video this week about where he went back to this warehouse. Yeah, I've and, not watched uh, that yet. Yeah, that, that's just amazing. And they're mm. they're just trying to get rid of the stuff because they've got so much of it and it's not, mm. and they don't see it as a, as a kind of valuable thing. They just want to get it out of the space. And it's like, for us, it's like, Oh my God, heaven. But some people it's, it's just like taking a room, you know? Yeah. Mm. Which is, I mean, cause you think back then, and I, I wondered this, you know, I was thinking then if you want to make a big profit off a game shop, you know, should you open one now <laughs> or just maybe buy, you know, a massive stash, have sealed Nintendo Switch games, put them in your attic for 20, 30 years, and you're going to make a fortune. But, I mean, you think now something like Grand Theft Auto V, that sold 155 million copies and this, over and, the last decade. And, and this is the thing, you know, I don't know the sales yeah. numbers of some of these games, but some of these games sold way less than 100,000. So, some, some, yeah, somewhere like 100,000, 10,000 even yeah. could get you in the charts. Yeah. In the but, but, yeah. but then you're becoming the guy who's at home with a Wii U collection and like 90 years old. retirement kids. <laughs> I always say that about my game collection. Whenever I buy something, I always say my daughter will sell these when I'm an old man. As soon as you're gone, get rid of them. Yeah, as soon as I'm gone, she'll, get, she'll, put, she'll chuck them on that furnace to heat the house. <laughs> that would be it. You know what? It's weird because I know a guy I watch on YouTube actually. He's been like buying a load of um, 360 games and actually selling them for a bit of profit now on mm. uh, on eBay. And I know you were saying the other day, Ravi, you're always in charity shops and stuff, and you're thinking of maybe getting a PlayStation Two collection. Is the time kind of right? And I, you know, th- they were talking about the Wii U before, and I kind of think maybe that is a system that's got more likelihood of being a valuable collector's item in the future, just because it was a failure. I don't think anyone's going to be you know selling a a sealed copy of GTA Five in 20 years for like you know 100 grand or anything do you yeah who knows like um, yeah heating prices might be so high that actually chucking a a version of contra on the fire might be um it it could (laughs) be it could be a viable source of energy (laughs) 
That's about, Heritage auctions are probably looking at this, thing, rubbing their hands, thinking, right, which one of these can we get? <laughs> oh, yeah, Quick, absolutely. get upgraded. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's a very cool video, though, so I'll put that in our show notes at theradiohour.com and in your podcast app as well. And it's time to mention one more thing as well before we uh, jump into our chat with J- David L. Craddock. This is a cool magazine that you spotted um, on Kickstarter that's actually um, reached its goal, all about retro first-person shooters. Yeah, this is cool. My uh, friend Harry mentioned this to me, and um, it's called E1M1, and E1M1 refers to the um, hangar level on Doom, uh, so the very first kind of level on Doom. And uh, it's awesome. It's like they're looking at old-school first-person shooters, so that's what the magazine's about. And we're having a bit of a... A revival of like video game mags at the moment and the the great thing about this is they're doing it in kickstarter they're doing chunks of it but you can also buy it um like e1m1magazine.com as well uh you can buy issues there you can buy physical or digital and in each issue they're kind of covering a first person shooter an old school one so there's a the ion fury which is a new one that's come out um they've got like one about postal 2 um They've got one about Dusk, another one about Kingpin. I can imagine they're going to have like Redneck Rampage at one point and all of these kind of old school ones that you just remember, but like you may not have played. So having some details about them and also having stuff about like the the latest modded kind of Doom games and, uh, you know, there's a whole community of people modding these old school titles and old school FPSs and Doom is pretty much, you know, the standard for testing anything at the moment so uh, it's it's really cool to see this kind of magazine and like i'm seeing so many retro magazines coming out at the moment or kind of like nostalgic ones it's it's a real kind of booster and uh yeah I, i'm kind of just happy to see magazines coming back it is cool and actually at the weekend um so i've got a, a pentium one pc that i've had for a while that hasn't been working so at the weekend, I might finally managed to get Windows 95 installed on a, a new I, new old IDE hard disk that I bought off eBay. Found all the graphics drivers, put a, uh, a Matrox or a Matrox graphics card I've got in there as well that is kind of an early 3D accelerator. Um, so I've actually got this rig built now, 32 megabytes of memory, which is you know, quite a lot for like a 1996 rig. Um, and the first thing I installed on there the other day was Quake. And it plays really nicely. So I'm thinking, you know, I, I kind of want to explore that era of kind of mid-90s FPS games a bit more. So actually, I mean, because it was such an exciting time, wasn't it? That was when, you know, people were actually going out and buying whole new computers just to play the latest FPS game. It really pushed technology forward. Yeah, didn't they, it, each, each FPS title that came out had a different innovation, uh, which is yeah. kind of like standardised and put into gameplay now. But like even like transparency on windows and stuff like that. And then like, you know, rocket jumping and like everything was kind of developed through the different FPSs. And it's, it's really exciting to kind of see this magazine. And uh, I think you need to get Duke Smoochum when it comes out on your old school mm-hmm. setup. <laughs> that was that, that spoof we were talking about a couple of months ago, wasn't yeah. it? That looks incredible. And they're going to be doing this in like um, three issues. Can we be doing Kickstarters for each? Um, yeah, so they've already done issues. quite a few. And uh, right. uh, they're up to, oh, what is it? They're up to issue nine at the moment, which is okay. pretty good. And then they're also doing stuff like music packs. So if you remember with the first person shooters, like Nine Inch Nails were on um, some of yeah, the Quake, Quake games. And uh, like, you know, the, the music behind. FPS, this was just absolutely amazing as well. 
Yeah, and there's actually a free sample you can read. Um, you get a few pages that you can check out as a PDF on uh, on the Kickstarter as well. So very cool. Like you said, it's always cool to see just new gaming mags coming out, you know. Just can't beat having like a nice bath on a Saturday morning and, you know, getting a nice magazine in your hand, can you? Having a good read. Oh, so, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely worth checking out. Now, we're going to be chatting to David L. Craddock, getting really in-depth about Mortal Kombat in just a second. Before we do, we mentioned that we're off to the uh, Doncaster Gaming Market on Saturday, so that means, you know, got to leave the house, lads. Got to be looking our best. And actually, it's quite timely that our friends at Harry's are sponsoring this week's show as well. So that means not only... To Harry's, obviously, have uh, all your shaving needs taken care of. We've talked about them before. They're super sharp razors. They give you an incredible shave. But actually, they've got your entire morning routine covered, from close shaves to flake-free hair, all the way to clear, healthy skin. Harry's mission is to help guys feel good. And actually, because they've sponsored this week's episode, um, we're offering a free travel-size shower gel with a trial set to our listeners to give you a chance to try their other products as well as a shave too. And, you know, we're all big fans of Harry's and I think it's very timely as well. We're all, you know, we've all got holidays coming up in the next few months as well. You know, the world's reopening. We're going to be getting on planes and travelling soon. And you know what? I uh, shaved my beard the other day, actually. <laughs> Harry's... Ravi looks about 25 <laughs> yeah, now. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to grow it back. But uh, Harry's really helped as well because if you've not shaved for kind of a long time, you know, it can get mm. really itchy and you're just like... Oh, my face is cold and it was really nice to have like you know the good shaving foam and like five blade cartridge as well and get that really close shave yeah that really smooth finish that it gives you as well um so this trial set i mean if you're going on holiday as well this is perfect because you know one thing i love about having all this stuff together is you know having a shave in the shower you know, it's really easy. Before you go out, you know, get, get it all done at once. So they'll give you an expertly engineered weighted handle, one five-blade cartridge created by their artisans in their own German factory with a precision trimmer. You get a handy foaming shave gel for effective lubrication. It means you get that really smooth gel. No, it's not itchy or anything like that. You know, it doesn't irritate your skin. You also get a travel blade cover for your adventures this summer as well and a free shower gel for our listeners too so we'd love you to take up this incredible offer give harry's a try see how they can transform your morning routine and uh, make sure that you support the podcast by redeeming your free trial set now all you've got to do is cover the three pound 95 for delivery use our exclusive link harrys.com slash retro to have your set delivered and start a shave plan and your freebie is going to be added at checkout no vouchers to remember anything like that head to harrys.com slash retro and a massive thank you to harry's for their support of our show. All right then, so are we ready to get some stories about one of our favourite video game series going right back to the start of Mortal Kombat with author David L. Craddock, who's behind this incredible new trilogy of books that are coming out, Long Live Mortal Kombat, and he's going to be on the Retro Hour podcast next. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for our favourite bit of the show when we welcome on our very special guest and it's someone who needs no introduction to the Retro Hour because we've had him on several times now talking about his incredible books including the history of FPS games, the best and worst arcade ports as well. Let's welcome back David L. Craddock. How are you doing David? I'm doing really well and I think this might be my third Retro Hour so eventually I'm trying to get all the way up to 24 so there'll be a, a full day of David hours on the Retro Hour. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, we love talking to you, so we're well up for that, David. It's always fascinating <laughs> chatting to you about your uh, your thoroughly researched books. And actually, I was really excited when you uh, got in touch with us and mentioned you're working on a, a book called Long Live Mortal Kombat, actually a series of books. You know, being a kid that you know, was obsessed with Mortal Kombat back in the day. So uh, it's going to be good to kind of talk about your research. And uh, I thought it might be quite nice to kind of get some of your history with the game as well, because I know you, obviously you're a massive fan of Mortal Kombat, and um, it was a game that really started life in the arcades. So, I mean, you know, as an arcade goer, before Mortal Kombat came along, what were your strongest kind of arcade memories pre-Mortal Kombat? Two really stand out. Uh, I remember, so my parents divorced when I was young, around five, which was uh, definitely the best thing for them, but also one of the best things that ever happened to me because I got some great extended family out of it. And I also had two arcades to frequent, one near dad's house, one near mom's. And I remember mom took me to the arcade once. She'd go shopping and leave me mesmerized by video games, which is the the best babysitter. I maintain that. And uh, I remember going around the arcade. A lot of my favorite games were beat-em-ups. I loved Golden Axe. I loved uh, Final Fight. And I don't know why I didn't see this, but um, I remember one time going in, I'd always kind of make my way counterclockwise around the arcade because my favorite games happened to be along the right side of the room. And then when I got to maybe away from about six o'clock to around nine o'clock, I saw Konami's first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles beat them up and I was out of quarters. And I thought, man, I've got to change my rotation here to start this, to start here next time. And uh, mom wouldn't give me any quarters. So I was fresh out that day, but actually that's still my favorite arcade game. And then after that, I remember going into another arcade and just seeing a mob of people around this game called Street Fighter 2. And like a lot of people, I had no idea Street Fighter 1 existed. And as soon as I saw Street Fighter 2 for the first time, I didn't care. I was hooked on that game for about a year. And then Mortal Kombat came out, and now I'm writing a book about it. Well, tell us the first time you, you kind of saw it. And did you, did you see it in an arcade form? And uh, like, was, was it just surrounded with people? Yeah, I did see it in an arcade. That arcade was the one near my dad's house. I walked in. There's another mob of people, but even bigger. And I saw something I'd never seen before. Actually, a couple of things. The first of which was there were so many people around this cabinet that you could not see. There, was, there wasn't there was even enough room for a little 10-year-old me to elbow his way closer to the screen. So above the cabinet, they had the proprietor had mounted a monitor. And I was watching. And at first, I, I didn't know how to kind of reconcile what I was seeing with games I'd played before because it looked like a movie. The graphics were, you know, photorealistic for the time. And then I saw the second thing I'd never seen before, um, which was the sky going dark and one of the characters punching through the other guy's chest and ripping his heart out. Mm. And I just thought, you know, coming from Street Fighter Ninja Turtles, I don't know what to make of this. I didn't think you could do that sort of thing in in video games. And uh, next time I went back to the arcade, I waited in a long line and got to play it. Probably played Scorpion or Sub-Zero. Ninjas are so awesome. Kids love ninjas. And uh, I've been hooked ever since. Well, you mentioned about the, the crowd around the machine. And I've got a similar memory. The first time I saw Mortal Kombat, I think um, <laughs> it was in a place called... Uh, at Pontins here in the UK, which is kind of like a holiday kind of camp, you know, where your parents go and watch some uh, awful cabaret. And, but it had a great arcade. And my brother <laughs> and I, I remember seeing Mortal Kombat then. All the kids were crowded around it. And then you get your go 
on the machine and everyone's watching. I mean, have you got memories of that as well? That kind of nervous step up to the joystick and you'd have to take on the winner? Yeah, at first I actually was lucky enough to shake the nerves rather quickly. Um, I, I got my butt handed to me the first few times I played, but I was the first kid on my block to get a Mortal Kombat strategy guide. My mom bought me one that I still have to this day that shared all the special moves, all the fatalities. And so I very quickly made the transition from becoming uh, the kid who stepped up and was nervous and got pounded and, you know, shuffled to the back of the line to the kid who had other people cheering him because he knew all the moves. He knew the juggle combos. He knew the fatalities. And that was kind of a cool thing back then. You really, it was almost this, it was like watching a pro wrestling match or a boxing match where the crowd is just kind of part of the show. When you would do an arcade, especially one people hadn't seen, you just hear the collective, Oh, an arcade and people laughing and sharing just the gog and delighted at what they were seeing. And I experienced a lot of that. In fact, I became such a mortal Kombat fanatic that my seventh grade math teacher named me mortal. It was all I talked about in school. I just didn't realize <laughs> I talked about it to that extent. And uh, that nickname was used by students and teachers and stuck with me all through high school. So the funny thing is when I announced this book early last year, um, I had a lot of high school friends on like Facebook and Twitter who were like, oh, this is not surprising at all <laughs> to see this news. Well, the finishing moves in Mortal Kombat, you know, they were the stuff of legend. And I remember one kid getting a copy of a magazine that had them printed in. And then, you know, we could suddenly all pull them off as well. I mean, do you remember when you first discovered one and were the kind of, did you have that experience as well of people swapping them around the schoolyard? Yeah. The interesting thing about back then was you, you couldn't just go home or whip out your phone and look up something that you'd seen. Unless you were there telling someone that you'd played a game where one player ripped off the other guy's head with their spinal cord dangling from it was just something that it seemed like sort of a playground boast. Like, oh, yeah, dude. Right. Sure you did. Because, you know, to that at that point in the early 90s, video games were really like Mario. That's kind of how everyone thought of them. In fact, I talked to a lot of people, specifically the marketers at Acclaim and also John Tobias agreed that. Really, Mortal Kombat was what kind of forced video games to to grow up. Um, not that it was necessarily mature content. It could be pretty sensational and gratuitous, but it was something that forced everyone from retailers to marketers to publishers to go, oh, these aren't just toys. Video games don't just have to be for kids. And, you know, I, I said I, the first one I saw was Kano's heart rip uh, on that mounted monitor. And if I wouldn't have been there, and my friend had told me about that at recess or something, I, I probably wouldn't have believed him. In fact, even though I had that strategy guide, I would look at the, the seven different fatalities, one for each character. And even though the screenshots would be there, I don't know that I completely trusted them either. Cause this was the day and age when magazines like electronic gaming monthly would pull April fool's pranks. They, they very famously or infamously, claimed that you could unlock Sheng Long as a playable fighter in Street Fighter 2 to kind of play off Ryu's only those who master Sheng Long or defeat Sheng Long stand a chance. And um, it wasn't until I got to an arcade and actually either saw someone do a fatality or punched in the input myself that I believed, oh, wow, yeah, I, I totally did just rip a guy's head off. This is unbelievable. So when did you get uh, Mortal Kombat at home, and uh, what, what was the experience like? Oh, the experience was, was terrible. So 
My parents didn't discourage me playing games, but they only tolerated them. As long as I kept my grades up, I could play video games. But on Mortal Monday, September 13th, 1993, the only system I had that Mortal Kombat was available for was Game Boy. And the Game Boy port of MK1 is notoriously awful. Um, really laggy. Obviously, it's in black and white. You only have six characters in it instead of seven. In fact, a few years ago, I, I published a book called Arcade Perfect, where I specifically talked to programmers and artists and producers in charge of ports. And I talked to the guy who, who ported Mortal Kombat to Game Boy. And he said, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I didn't have much to work with, but the, it, it was pretty awful. I mean, the characters kind of, when they would jump, they were floating around almost as if you were jumping on the moon. Um, in fact, somewhat tangential, but related Street Fighter two on MS DOS and the Commodore Amiga was the same way. It was just an awful port with really floaty characters and controls. Mm. But the funny thing is my history with Mortal Kombat is also kind of my history of acquiring newer and better gaming platforms. Uh, I think the following Christmas, I got a game gear and the first game I bought was actually it was Mortal Kombat two because that was 1994. But then I also got Mortal Kombat one because I wanted to, you know, a, an in color version of Mortal Kombat on the go. And then I, I got Mortal Kombat for Super NES, which is also kind of an infamous port, uh, censored and, and really unresponsive controls. And I was able to, to talk to programmers to learn how that happened. And then finally, the, the MS-DOS port, which was as close to arcade perfect as you could get back then. So it was almost like the can it run crisis of the early 1990s. As soon as I'd get a new platform, I would get Mortal Kombat. And just compare and contrast how each different version looked, sounded, and played. I I remember having the Amiga version, and we used to get um, kind of copies, you know. And uh, <laughs> Sonya Sonya would never work on any of the pirated copies. I think it had really good, really good protection back then. <laughs> you, you had the yeah. same copy I had, Ravi. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I always love hearing the lo- the little ways. That the creative ways that developers and publishers try to try to thwart pirates, other than you know using like a a code like "Hey, turn to page thirteen, paragraph one, line two, first letter of the instruction manual" or something. Because uh, especially today, when people do that and they're like, "Oh, hey, this boss has a big head for me," and everyone's like, "Oh." You pirated it. <laughs> so it's always, it's always kind of funny. Well, the book is called uh, Long Live Mortal Kombat. Now, this is the first of three volumes. So um, tell us how this came about and kind of what's the vibe and how come it's going to be three different books? Sure. So this is Long Live Mortal Kombat round one. Book two will be round two. And then book three will be final round because in Mortal Kombat, you have to win two out of three. And this came about initially because I, I'd always wanted to write about Mortal Kombat, but um, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, you know, I've, I've written a lot of, of video game history books or biographies at this point. So e- even though I love a lot of the games and companies that a lot of people enjoy, such as Nintendo, such as Mortal Kombat, I don't really like retreading old ground. I'm at the point where I'm very selective about what I want to write about, even though I enjoy it. As another example, I love the Soulsborne games, but I only recently found kind of my point of entry that would distinguish them from everything else that's been written. Um, I started by writing about arcade ports for my book, Arcade Perfect, because as a kid, even though I got to play Mortal Kombat games in arcades occasionally, my parents weren't always willing to hand over, you know, $5 worth of quarters for me to experiment and probably get my ass kicked uh, to learn. So I, I played more Mortal Kombat games at home, and I was always interested in how the arcade came to be and as a kid you know 
comparing and contrasting screenshots and magazines, wondering why the Genesis version looked inferior to the Super NES. But, oh, Genesis has blood code, so that makes it better. And I, I wrote that, and I talked to John Tobias for that. He was very gracious with his time back then, and he has been over the last year. And then I was thinking, like, obviously, I want to write a full book just about Mortal Kombat. Really, Arcade Perfect was written because I wanted to write about Mortal Kombat. But I thought, well, what's my what's my point of entry? Because people have been writing about Mortal Kombat for going on 30 years as of this October. And then I thought, you know, as a fan, I mean, I discovered the game when I was 10. Mortal Kombat turns 30 in October. I turn 40 in March. So I'll have been with it every step of the way. And as a big fan, I followed its high highs and its very, very low lows. And the thing that always kept Mortal Kombat going, in my opinion, was the fan enthusiasm for it. Even when there was a, a bad game release, in terms of critical scores, such as, you know, Mortal Kombat Mythology Sub-Zero or Special Forces, um, the Mortal Kombat fans still kind of kept the flame alive. They wanted, they wanted it to give Mortal Kombat another chance, see if it could come back better than ever. And I think a part of that was because of Mortal Kombat's lore, you know, Capcom spent literally years iterating on street fighter without a lot of changes to the story. Whereas Mortal Kombat, you got sequels more often, you got new looks for returning characters. You had a lot of new characters who were very intriguing in terms of how they kind of fit into the overall, the storyline that John Tobias and Ed Boon were building. And so I thought I want to write a book where I examine, I want to write a series of books where I examine each era of Mortal Kombat. So to me, that's arcade, the 3D console games, and then the reboot era, starting with uh, 2011's Mortal Kombat 9. And in each book, I want to write not only about how the games were made, you know, kind of taking people behind closed doors to hear firsthand accounts from the developers, but I want to write about fan stories in the Mortal Kombat fandom, because uh, you guys know this. If you grew up playing Mortal Kombat, you also grew up seeing video games demonized in the press by parents, by politicians. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, like, my mom let me play Mortal Kombat when I was 10. She didn't like it. She found it disgusting. But she said, you know, as long as you're not getting in fights or anything, you can play this game. It's not real. So why would I have a problem with that? And I just remember all the sensationalism around Mortal Kombat's violence made me think, you know, I don't really know of anyone killing each other because of, of, of this game or games like, you know, later on Grand Theft Auto or Manhunt. Um, and I, I, I wanted to kind of get to the bottom of that. I actually talked to a couple of psychologists about the history of violence in video games. And I talked to fans who unanimously had nothing but positive things to say about how Mortal Kombat had shaped their lives. I talked to a guy in Russia, whose arcade was kind of co-opted by drug dealers who would do deals there and they would beat up anyone who didn't go away and leave, leave their turf. And this guy as a kid bested them in Mortal Kombat. And at first they beat him up for it, but then he actually gained the respect because, you know, while they're at the, at the arcade waiting for, you know, buyers or other clients, um, messing around with video games and he taught them how to play Mortal Kombat and was actually allowed to set foot in the arcade. And he went on to have a career in IT and he directly attributed that to Mortal Kombat, making him interested in computers. Because once he got a computer, the first thing he did was, I'm going to look up Mortal Kombat websites. And there weren't a lot out there. So then he wrote Mortal Kombat guides for websites. He started his own Mortal Kombat sites. And that led to him being a healthy, functional adult who never murdered anyone and who has a, a very good career. I talked to another guy who lived in an abusive home 
And because he was just a kid and powerless to stop his dad from hitting his mom, he would uh, crawl out his window, run to the nearby 7-Eleven, where there was a Mortal Kombat 2 cabinet. And the guy working the graveyard shift would watch this kid just kind of staring at the cabinet. So he said, I'll tell you what, kid, if you sweep the floors, I'll put it on free play. You can play as much as you want. And so Mortal Kombat became his escape. And I think that I've, I've done a good job, he said humbly, of of collecting a lot of these stories of, of how this game that has been villainized and used as a scapegoat has had almost nothing but a positive impact on its community who have, who have embraced it and kind of carried it on their shoulders through thick and thin over three decades. Yeah. And I think, you know, thinking back to my days at school as well, I always thought it was better that we took our frustrations out on each other on the game yeah. rather than the schoolyard. Yeah, exactly. That's I mean, if anything, it's it's helpful in that way. And you know, other games that have been uh, villainized and pilloried are the same thing. You know, Doom, Grand Theft Auto, you name it. It's it's just kind of a fun way to let out some aggression, and it's also it's also really creative. I mean, the the thing that a lot of people who damn these violent games don't really think about is that the violence is only surface level. Most Mortal Kombat fans, they're not doing a fatality every time they win. Once you've seen them all a few times. It's just kind of old. You're more interested in seeing every character's ending and reading up on the story or sharing tips about how to get better with your friends. If you look at the pro scene today, uh, nobody does a fatality in Mortal Kombat when they win a big money game, unless they just kind of want to rub it in their opponent's face. And even then it's it's done good naturedly. Uh, you kind of just, it says, finish him. And then you just like punch him because you want to get to the next match. It's about the competition, not what happens after the competition. And I talked to a lot of guys who kind of started the FGC, the fighting game community in arcades, and things worked the same way back then. Nobody really cared about fatalities. It was about me versus you to see who's the best. I talked to a lot of guys who would drive around the country, um, kind of hang out in arcades, learn about who was the best player in that zip code, wait to face him, and then either win or lose. But they kind of made friends that way. They're still in contact today. You look deeply into the history of development. And of course, like John Tobias and Ed Boone are the main guys behind it. But like, what, what, where were the roots of MK? And like, where were the original ideas initially from? Sure. This, this happened because, you know, John Tobias and Ed Boone both worked at, at Williams, as it was known then, before they, uh, they acquired Midway. And... Um, they were both working on other projects, but in their spare time, they'd kind of just chat about, hey, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, they, I think they both wanted to, as I recall, um, experiment with digital graphics and make a martial arts game. And, you know, at first Van Damme was attached, but it was really just these two guys who were between projects chatting whenever they could about about how it would be really fun to make this really high graphical fidelity fighting game. And it really originated from that. And I also got to learn, you know, John shared all sorts of names they kicked around, such as uh, Kumite was one and, and Fatality was another. And I, I list more in the book, but all they really wanted to do was, was make a fighting game that was, that was different from Street Fighter. Uh, and it, it wasn't, they, de they never designed Mortal Kombat by looking at Street Fighter and saying, okay, Whatever this does, let's do the opposite. But they, they knew they needed to distinguish themselves. And so, you know, they made it more sensational. They had the photorealistic graphics for the time. They had the finishing moves and more of an emphasis on story. If you remember just watching Street Fighter II's attract mode, you'd get little biographies on the characters, but they were very, very simple. Like, here's Ryu's height and weight and blood type. Like, who cares, really? Mm -hmm. 
but you know, Mortal Kombat, it was like, oh, so there's this guy Kano, and he's got a metal plate on his face and a laser eye. How do you lose that eye? And oh, he's a member of the Black Dragon Gang. And then Sonya is actually here not to compete in Mortal Kombat, but to apprehend Kano because she's been chasing this globally notorious criminal for years. And well, what happens if you win with him? And what happens with if you win with her? And then Mortal Kombat 2 comes out and Sonya and Kano aren't in the game. But oh, on this stage, if you scroll to either direction, you see that they're actually in shackles. They're Shao Kahn's prisoner. And it was just really kind of fun for, for John and Ed from game to game to go like, oh, what if we have a character who's like this and this is how it fits in the world? And the interesting thing is to me, Mortal Kombat does a great job at sort of differentiating story and lore. I think a lot of times uh, players, developers, even critics use them interchangeably, but I, I really consider story something told to you that you maybe take part in, such as reading dialogue boxes, talking with characters. But lore is kind of like looking around the environments and piecing together what's happening and looking at each character's intro and ending biography and, and seeing how it kind of they fit with the biographies of other characters. It's really Mortal Kombat was almost almost the predecessor to a game like Demon Souls or Dark Souls in that way, where, yeah, you chat with characters every now and then, but it's really more about, hey, did you gather every piece of armor in this environment and read the lore and figure out who this person was and why their armor was here and kind of what happened to them. That to me is lore. It's a lot of environmental storytelling and Mortal Kombat has just always held players fascination in part because of that. How much of an influence were like old school Kung Fu films. So um, stuff like Shogun Assassin, a big trouble in little China and uh, enter the dragon. Oh, a huge influence. So John Tobias grew up uh, doing two things. You know, he loved to, to read comics and draw comics and he also Loved to watch martial arts film. Um, Bruce Lee was kind of an idol to Tobias, but also his friends. He he knew um, Dan and Carlos Piscina, who uh, portrayed characters in Mortal Kombat. And those guys in turn knew Rich Divizio, uh, Hosung Pak, and Liz Malecki, who also play, portrayed characters in the original Mortal Kombat. And those guys, all those, all those uh, folks, with the exception of Liz Malecki, who's a, a fitness trainer, um, they were martial artists themselves. They studied in China. Uh, Ho Sung Pak, who portrayed Liu Kang in Mortal Kombat 1 and 2, is actually not just a competitor. He was considered the greatest martial artist in the world at that time, at least in the country. He, he competed in all sorts of tournaments, won every championship you could win. Uh, in fact, Ho Sung Pak, Rich Divizio, a.k.a. Kano, and, and Dan Piscina all uh, competed in tournaments together. They were doing like forms. They would do sparring matches. And they were also stunt doubles in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze. Uh, Dan and Rich played foot soldiers, and they said it was kind of funny. They'd, you know, they'd get punched or kicked and fly off, fly off camera, and then they'd wait a little bit, and they'd come running back in as you know, another foot soldier to get beat up by the turtles. And um, when Tobias realized, like, oh, okay, Ed and I can make this martial arts game, but we need people who can actually perform martial arts, uh, he talked to his friends and, and brought them in to record. And and that's when they 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 all kind of learned this process together. I mean, John and Ed knew a lot about it, but when they'd get in there, these martial artists, they'd go, okay, uh, John might say, all right, we, uh, they had a list of moves. So John might say, okay, do a high kick. How would you do a high kick? And they'd, they'd snap it out fast as you can be. And John would go, well, no, 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 actually it needs to be really slow. 
because we're recording this and I need to be able to go in and pick out animations frame by frame to kind of put the moves together in the game. And so all the martial artists, that was kind of hard to wrap their heads around at first because they're not trying to be slow in tournaments unless they're doing a form. And so it was, it was really this kind of group learning experience of everyone learning what it entailed to be in a game, but also very, very influenced by, by Bruce Lee and a lot of, a lot of popular martial arts films, such as enter the dragons, but uh, enter the dragon, but also a lot of, of really niche ones that only they as these kind of martial arts film nerds knew about. We used to have a lot of friends that would go around, you know, swapping VHSs of mad martial arts films. And then <laughs> when that came out, you were like, oh, that's quite similar to that scene here. Or, you know. Yeah, it, it's it's really cool how that happened in a lot of cultures. Like, uh, you know, I have friends who would do the same thing, but with, with pro wrestling tapes, just to watch these matches from Japan or Mexico. And you didn't see those performers otherwise. And, um, yeah, you know, these guys were definitely like that with martial arts films. Well, you mentioned before about, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Was that kind of the plan originally to have, like, established stars in the game? And what, what kind of changed there? It was. Um, so Roger Sharp, who's the, the kind of the head of marketing at Midway, he, even though the, the higher-ups thought of Mortal Kombat as filler, which John and, and Ed did not. They, they didn't know it would become the, the phenomenon that it became, but they were like, well, we think this game has, has a real chance. Um, but Roger Sharp was like, okay, well, we want to do more licensed stuff because, of course, they, you know, they were putting together the NBA license for NBA Jam, and they figured, you know, with a license that gives a game more visibility than it might otherwise get to help stand out in arcades. So I believe he told them, you know, hey, uh, we, we know the folks who work with Van Dam, and we know the folks who work with Steven Seagal, and uh, John and Ed had a preference for Van Dam, but then that kind of fell through, and so they figured, oh, that's probably for the best because then this this licensed game would be forever tied to Van Damme and if one day he was no longer interested then the series would kind of die so that really ended up being more of a blessing than a curse because they could make any Mortal Kombat game they wanted to and they had full control over the the characters and settings and all of that and i've heard you know in that era as well it was quite hard to attract kind of you know well-known actors to the video game industry just because they didn't really understand it i guess Oh, absolutely. I mean, video games were, like I said, at, at really before Mortal Kombat, video games were considered toys. You didn't do things like have, have voice actors, mm -hmm. and, and voice actors certainly didn't. I, I would say voice actors, actors in general, probably viewed video games the way Hollywood actors viewed TV before the rise of HBO and Showtime. Like, oh, why would I start uh, in a TV show? I do movies. You know, voice actors are like, well, why would I you know, lend my voice to a game. I'm, I'm, I'm doing, you know, animated films. And um, one of the companies that kind of made inroads there was Sierra when they hired, I can't think of his name, but for King's Quest V, they got the voice actor who view, who voiced uh, the Beast in Beauty and the Beast. And everyone else was, every other voice, every other character was just voiced by a developer of the studio, which is why voice acting back then was pretty spotty. But that's actually another fin fun bit of trivia John shared. He said, you know, up until a certain point, Ed Boon did the voices for everyone. He was Jack shouting, gotcha, in Mortal Kombat 2 when he'd grab you and punch you in the face, and Liu Kang's, you know, martial arts cries. Uh, the exception was he was not the ring announcer. That was Ed's friend, Steve Ritchie, I believe, from the pinball division, who had a, a perfect voice for that sort of thing, the round one mm -hmm. fight. And, of course, Ed would, you know, manipulate it in, in the code, and and then uh, the Mortal Kombat team kind of, team kind of started with ed and john and then uh they knew john vogel another artist and they knew dan forden who was a musician and, and those guys kind of helped put their touch 
on arenas as well uh arenas and and the game soundtrack and just the world that you would inhabit when you played well the characters in the game you know the roster was actually really strong and quite varied as well I and mean, obviously we had the two ninjas in there with um sub-zero and scorpion and uh you know raiden who was like a lightning god i mean did you kind of learn much about the the development in your research and how they kind of came up with all these different characters. I did. Yeah. So Johnny Cage was actually the, he started as another character called Michael Grimm and that's who Jean-Claude Van Damme would play. They were going to have him play, not himself, but he would portray a character just as he would in a movie. But then when Van Damme dropped out, John Tobias kind of, uh, he and Ed talked about the, the Michael Grimm character and concept and they, they changed it to to Johnny Cage and gave him more of a Hollywood background. Uh, Sub-Zero and Scorpion came with uh, John and Ed's fascination with ninjas. And they read, a, 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 read up on a lot of mythology books about the history of, of clans such as the Lin Kuei, which is actually kind of a real clan. Uh, they just kind of, you know, added a little bit of supernatural elements into the mix. And um, the, the one roadblock they hit early on was that originally, instead of seven characters, the game had six there was no female character. And on the first test, the game did really, really, really well. Uh, John Ned remembered uh, driving it, loading it up into a truck, driving the truck to an arcade nearby their Chicago office called Times Square Arcade. They would unload it and they put it next to a Street Fighter II machine. And then they just kind of sat back and, and would watch. That's one thing the developers of games would do at Midway they would usually hang out just to watch and see how people reacted, not necessarily hoping for a, wow, this game is awesome. But if they got frustrated, they would want to know where they got frustrated and kind of suss out why as they continued to work on the game. And they actually, Ed and John watched as, as Mortal Kombat pulled more and more people from Street Fighter 2 until there was eventually no one playing Street Fighter. They were, everyone was crowded around Mortal Kombat. Um, but the one piece of feedback, Ken Fidesna, whom I also spoke with, who was one of the managers at Midway, one note he had from his meetings and he, he he gave me access to all these notes from his meetings that he took sales numbers, everything. He said, you need a female character, you know, street fighter has a female character. And also, you know, you can't just, just have guys. We need kind of a, a, a woman, probably a sexier woman given the demographic for arcade games back then. And that's where Sonia came in. Uh, Elizabeth Malecki, everyone called her Liz. She was not a martial artist but she was uh, a physical fitness expert. And so she could easily mimic punches and, and kicks and they put Sonia in and, and that's how uh, Sonia came about bringing the roster up to seven. I remember everybody going, oh, there's that kiss of death move, you know, she kisses you once and you die. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was <laughs> it was so cool. And I, I also, so, so I talked to developers, I talked to fans just to learn their stories, but I also sought out, a lot of pro players. There's uh, two twins. Their names are Ryan and Jake Neal. They played contemporary Mortal Kombat games competitively, and, and then they became commentators at pro tournaments. And uh, on their channel, they, well, they actually call themselves, so Ryan is Ketchup and uh, Jake is Mustard. That's because those are the code names for Sector and Cyrax, two of the ninjas in Mortal Kombat 3, who are also each respective twin's favorite character in Mortal Kombat mythology. And uh, they actually have videos breaking down Mortal Kombat's mechanics on their YouTube channels. And so I watched those, but I also interviewed them. And I said, so, you know, there's one question, for example, was uh, I said, you know, as a kid, I, I loved Sub-Zero and Scorpion. Where would they rank in the tiers? And they were like, oh, actually, they're dead last because their recovery is really slow. They have more frames of animations. They don't have quite the reach. And I said, well, who's number one? 
And they said, well, so the funny thing is, you know, going into Mortal Kombat 2, and John Tobias confirmed this, um, Mortal Kombat's arcade cabinets had audits. When there was no one playing, uh, Ed and John could go up to a cabinet and put a secret code and actually view stats such as who's the most selected character, who's the least selected character. And, you know, again, nothing was connected to the internet. They could only look at their local machines. But according to their audits, Kano and Sonya were the least selected characters. So that's why they were cut from Mortal Kombat 2, but they didn't leave them out completely. They, you could still find them in the background of one of the stages, which kind of, again, sparked the curiosity of, oh, why are they captured? And, you know, what does this mean for the overall story? Um, but Sonya actually elsewhere was very popular. Uh, if you look at the, I actually included a scan of this in the book, but the MS-DOS manual for Mortal Kombat lists Sonya as one of the popular, most popular characters. And the reason she's number one is because with her leg scissors move, her handstand where she flips you with her legs, if you get the timing down right, it is unblockable. You can do that over and over and over and over and over again until you win a round. And so with that, uh, Ryan Neal told me, yeah, Sonya's number one, because if you catch people with that, it's done. You win. And I said, well, what about without the leg grab? And he said, even without that, Sonya is very versatile. Her leg grab is fast. But if you take that out of the running, her ring toss, her projectile is still fast. She has an anti-air flight move that allows her to not only knock people out of the air and keep them away from her, but cross distances. She can literally fly across the screen to stop, say, Sub-Zero and Scorpion players who keep trying to throw ice or the spear at her. And I said, well, what about number two? And they said, oh, Johnny Cage, because his moves are really fast. You can juggle with the shadow kick and the green flame. Um, so it was really interesting learning, uh, kind of kind of clouding or dispelling these, these misconceptions that I had as a kid. Like, oh, the ninjas are cool, so obviously they're the best. Nope, actually they're the worst. And that was the case in Mortal Kombat 2 as well. Uh, Sub-Zero and Scorpion and Reptile were all three kind of near the bottom of the pack. Well, you mentioned the kind of cartoonish vibes previously on like street fighter and ninja turtles and uh, other stuff like capcom as well was that the first time you saw that digital digitized style because i i'd seen that there were previous games like uh, bram stoker's dracula was one that had that kind of digitized style yeah that was the first time i'd seen it and over the course of researching long live mortal kombat i learned about earlier games i think i'd seen mark uh, no i'm sorry narc but I didn't really think of it as digitized because even then the graphics were pretty cartoonish. Um, I don't know that I'd seen uh, Pit Fighter, which actually predated Mortal Kombat, um, but its graphics were, no offense to anyone who made Pit Fighter, because I talked to some of those developers as well, but very rudimentary. Mortal Kombat's characters were huge. They were some of the biggest characters I'd seen in our, in our arcade game, video games in general. And the they were so smoothly animated. It really did feel like watching a movie. So uh, part of the research for this book was actually tracing the history of digitization. And one of the developers I talked to was Warren Davis, who kind of walked me through his early digitization efforts. And uh, even John Tobias, co-creator of MK, told me, you know, it's definitely up to to Warren Davis's technology that that made Mortal Kombat possible. Well, I love how technical you got in the book. Can you tell us about the TMC 34010 and uh, how that kind of led to technology that enabled Mortal Kombat? Yeah, it was. So one thing I try to do with all my books is I like to introduce readers to characters first, because that way, even the less technically minded people will find something to latch onto before I wade into the technical details and they'll be they'll still be interested 
because they will want to know how that affected what these characters, what these developers are doing and how they used it. And so learning about things like, you know, Midway's different arcade boards or the, the, the Targa board that Warren Davis combined with his uh, custom software, homebrew software to, to kind of upgrade Midway's video capture technology for digitization. It was also interesting to me. And, and one of the main subjects I'd always wanted to tackle was as much as I enjoyed Mortal Kombat one, it felt pretty slow and clunky, even for the time. I mean, the animations were smooth, but compared to Mortal Kombat two, which was just so much more fluid, um, it was hard to go back and play Mortal Kombat one. And that's because before Mortal Kombat was released, Midway actually upgraded their hardware. In fact, Ed Boon ported Mortal Kombat from the older arcade hardware to the newer, and it had no changes in terms of how the characters moved, because uh, it was still had to be the same game. But Mortal Kombat 2 was a very different beast because of how characters were stored in memory, because of how the you know they were formed from individual uh, pixels and and pieces of sprites, and that was all really really fascinating for me to delve into. And, you know, digitized characters, that's what really made Mortal Kombat stand out from, you know, other contemporaries like Street Fighter 2 in the arcade. Everyone would be like, you know, it's, it's real actors in there, real characters. I mean, what was actually the process of doing that back in the early 90s, of digitizing these characters into a video game? Yeah, it was, that was really fascinating for me to learn about. So they had, there was a, a recording room at Midway that was kind of used as a storage closet slash junkyard, I believe is how John Tobias put it. Uh, when no one was using the room, um, the, the first time he had his friends come to the studio to record them and he was kind of experimenting, they opened the storage room and there were just a bunch of of props and arcade cabinets and stuff in there. So first, the first thing they had to do was haul all that stuff out. And then the walls were actually all gray. Gray was another neutral color, like blue and green that you could record in front of. It wasn't until I think in Mortal Kombat 2's process when they actually ended up painting the walls blue pretty quote unquote blue screen, but uh, essentially, you know, John Tobias, he told me he went in and he set up lights and he, he put the lights, he placed them just so, and at a certain level of lighting, because for Mortal Kombat one, he wanted to capture a certain mood. He wanted it to be kind of, kind of gritty, kind of moody. And then he and Ed Boon were both behind the camera and uh, whoever was up from his martial arts friends they would just call out moves and the martial artist would do them over and over and over again, each time as slow as possible so that, you know, John had uh, as many, as much footage to kind of pick from as he put animations together as possible. And for things like, obviously like you can't jump slowly or fall slowly. Gravity does not cooperate. Um, so they would do things like they had this kind of mini staircase where they would, uh, they drag it out and an actor would pose on it. Like they'd kind of position themselves maybe on a hip and put themselves in, in the pose of like a flying kick or a punch. And sometimes another actor, they always had another actor on set to kind of help coach uh, each other actor because the, the idea was, okay, we'll do one of you such as Dan Piscina, and then we'll do rich Divizio, who's Kano and we'll bring Dan in as a coach because, you know, Dan's been through this so he can kind of help explain things to Richard, but also there's actually footage of, of, um, of Dan Piscina crouching, beside Rich Divizio's staircase and kind of holding him up because Kano's flying kick is such that he's almost, he's almost leaned sideways. And there were a couple of times when Rich Divizio actually spilled off the stairs because he couldn't keep his balance. But the idea was, Hey, hold this pose as long as possible. And also kind of slowly fold and unfold from move to move so that we can capture this on the computer. And then once John had that, 
the thing about Mortal Kombat one was they were he was recording on VHS, so he had to go in uh, using Warren Davis's Targa software, and he had to clean up the footage. Remember when you'd pause VHS tapes, the screen would kind of shake, and you'd get the static from tracking. Yeah, um, he had to clean that up. He had to remove pixels that weren't the right color around them and then put those into uh, animation strings. And then he'd give all those to Ed who would uh, program them into the game and make the buttons actually respond and, and call up uh, certain animations. And then uh, Mortal Kombat did so well. I think it sold over 26,000 cabinets, which was huge back then that um, for Mortal Kombat two, uh, they got a new camera and a lot of new equipment. They no longer had to use VHS tapes. They were, uh, I think, halfway or so through the process. Uh, for the first half, they used VHS tapes. But for the second half, they used their new equipment so they could actually record and capture the footage digitally directly to the computer. So it was still a lot of, there was still a lot of cleaning up of the images involved, but nowhere near to the extent they had when they were only using VHS. So it was really interesting to, to dig into all that stuff. Well, the fighting games were absolutely huge back then as well. You know, uh, they were kind of king of the game. Every, everybody was trying to outdo each with technology. And the, the, the kind of main thing that happened with Mortal Kombat was the uh, finishing moves. Um, <laughs> like, where did this kind of concept and idea come from? Sure. So I talked to, to John Tobias a lot about that. Um, essentially, he and Ed Boone, the, the two co-creators, they kind of started this game on their own. They wanted to do a martial arts game. And at first they were thinking of, you know, Midway wanted them to license someone because actually Mortal Kombat to Midway, they viewed it as just a filler game. They were waiting on uh, NBA Jam and a couple of other big games. They didn't have anything. So when uh, Boone and Tobias said, oh, we want to kind of do a martial arts game, they were like, oh, cool. Yeah, that'll fill a slot. Uh, just see if you can license someone so that we have some name power behind it. And I believe the person who proposed that to them was, uh, Roger Sharp, another person I interviewed, who's uh, one of the heads of marketing at Midway. And that idea fell through. And and John Tobias said, you know, we're actually grateful to that, because if we would have had Van Damme's name attached to it, maybe we would have had a one hit game, possibly two, and then who knows where the series would have gone. So they, they were really inspired by a lot of martial arts movies, such as uh, Enter the Dragon with Bruce Lee. And they also, they knew about Street Fighter and they liked it, but they wanted to do a couple of things differently. One was, you know, in Street Fighter, when you have two players throwing fireballs at each other, the fireballs will collide and dissipate. And um, Mortal Kombat, they wanted to, to be just nonstop aggression. They didn't want each gunslinger on opposite ends of the screen just throwing fireballs all day. So the projectiles would pass through each other. That would force either one or the other to jump closer and, you know, mix it up with hand-to-hand -hand combat. And they also wanted to kind of stylize the game more, make it really sensational. That's why they added blood, because they figured, you know, more sensation equals more quarters. That was the name of the game at Midway and every other coin-op developer. And the first kind of finishing move they implemented was this beatdown. Um, they taped that with uh, Daniel Pacina, who was the, the actor martial artist who played Johnny Cage and the Three Ninjas. And it was just kind of like an automated thing where when you win, you just beat the other guy down. And Shang Tsung, the sorcerer final boss, had a fatality where he would uh, whip out a sword at his waist and decapitate you. And that was also automatic. But then they kind of got to thinking like, well, what if we give each person their own finishing move? And that's where that kind of started. And really, it was just the sky was the limit. And probably also Ed Boon's coding skills were the limit too. But he was pretty slick back then. He'd actually come from a background programming the LED screens of pinball games. And so really, anything he and Tobias thought up 
they could kind of do. And so the fatalities just got more outlandish from, you know, uppercutting someone's head off to ripping out their heart to, you know, breathing fire and reducing them to a, a charred skeleton. And everything was just, how can we make this more sensational? How can we get more people excited about this game and get more quarters? I was I was wondering, did they have much field testing of the game before release? And uh, uh, it, did you was, learn about any changes from feedback people were giving? Yeah, so there was, they, they didn't do a lot. It was usually a few months. I think Mortal Kombat, let's see, they started that in late 1991. I believe the third field, the first field test, and I have all these dates in my notes, <laughs> but it was in the summer sometime. And then October 8th, 1992 was the 1.0 release. And during the field release, they got feedback like, oh, hey, let's add a female character. Uh, hey, compl- players are saying this move is kind of broken. Um, the, the one big one that they fixed actually uh, up to and after the official release was that the gravity was such that certain characters, because of where their hitboxes were, could infinitely juggle a character. Um, Johnny Cage, for example, if you, as Johnny Cage, popped your opponent into the air and had them in a corner, you could do his jumping punch, which had Dan Piscina kind of jumping up and punching down. So that his hitbox, the collision detection was on his fist. And if you hit the other character with the top of Dan Piscina's fist, the character would pop back into the air and your Johnny Cage character would land while they were still in the air. And then you could jump up again, punch them again, jump up again, punch them again. They actually had to, you know, they got feedback from a lot of different arcade operators as well as their early tests. And they they eventually changed the gravity so that infinite juggles were impossible. And there are some longer juggles you can do, but the characters fall much faster so that you cannot keep them in the air nearly as long. But the, the fascinating thing about Mortal Kombat 1 and 2 especially was combos was something John and Ed weren't quite aware of. They knew that they were possible, but... It's, it's just one of those deals where, you know, four people made this game and then tens of thousands were playing it and discovering things that four people never could have rooted out. So they didn't think about combos. Modern fighting games use damage reduction combos because if you hit someone 18 times, they're probably going to die. Whereas in a modern fighting game, you might do like, I don't know, 32% damage. But Mortal Kombat, uh, certain characters like Johnny Cage, if you go in with a deep jump kick, um, hit them with a standing high punch to juggle them, and then do a shadow kick before they land, you can actually string those three moves together and take off about, I would say, 30 to 40% damage just with three moves. So if you knew those moves, uh, if you knew how to do juggles and you had the timing down, you kind of ruled arcades. In fact, I talked to people about charting the discovery of what they called the anti-air high punch, which is you would wait for someone to jump at you, and then you just tap high punch at the right moment, and that one little punch, that just that jab, would knock the opponent out of the air. And from there you'd hit them with as many moves as possible before they hit the ground. And that was not, that was one of the huge distinguishing marks from street fighter and street fighter two. If you hit someone in the air, they were invincible until they hit the ground. You mm-hmm. couldn't do juggles. Street fighter was all about the, the accidental glitch that let you cancel one move into the other, but that was all ground-based uh, mortal Kombat Didn't really add a lot of ground combos until MK three. Uh, it was, it was kind of a juggle game. And that's actually something else I explored, kind of the rivalry between Street Fighter 2 and Mortal Kombat players. But Street Fighter 2 players kind of looked down their noses at Mortal Kombat because they figured it was just all sensational and sensationalism. It's just, oh, you go, you only like that because of the blood. This is a real fighting game. And the reasons they would give, some of them were silly, like, oh, well, in Street Fighter, when I hit someone with a jumping kick, they don't get knocked down like they do in Mortal Kombat. I only knock them back so that when I land, I can go into a combo. 
But there were other things that were actually more technical uh, and more divisive. For example, you know, Street Fighter to block, you hold back on your joystick. Mortal Kombat had a back a block button. Mm. And a lot of Street Fighter players thought like, oh, that just means it's, you know, this game is for babies. You need a dedicated button. Um, I actually have always preferred the button because in, in Street Fighter, when I want to walk back, I want to walk back. But if they're attacking, I can't. I automatically go into a block animation and stay stationary. And that's actually something you can use tactically, but, you know, that's another conversation. So that was, it was a really in- interesting conversations with fans on both sides of the aisle, so to speak. Did you learn much as well about what the kind of Street Fighter 2 rivalry was viewed as, you know, from within Midway? I mean, and the developers, did they see it as their main competition? They definitely did. And, you know, John, Tobias, and Ed Boone didn't necessarily start out saying, we're going to do everything differently than Street Fighter and be better. But that's that's kind of what happened in terms of being different. When you look back at fighting games, even today, they're really based on one of two archetypes, Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat. You know, Mortal Kombat had so many distinguishing characteristics, knocking down on jump kick, the block button, uh, the more realistic, darker tone, the, the, the bloodier combat with finishing moves, that that became kind of another archetype. But no one has really ever done that as good as as Boone and Tobias and their team did. Whereas you could argue that a lot of the, there are more Street Fighter style games and some are as good, if not better than Street Fighter, such as maybe King of Fighters. and really with with more recent technology um those games are distinguishing themselves more but back when everything was sprite based you kind of you looked at street fighter or you looked at mortal Kombat. it wasn't a little bit of column a and b it was one or the other and so the the rivalry actually from within capcom was was pretty serious they were also derisive of mortal Kombat. they thought they were a more sophisticated game and i would say that they were even a lot of the hardcore mortal Kombat players i talked to said like mortal Kombat one was really good but mechanics, it was not on Street Fighter's level. And Mortal Kombat 2 changed that because of certain things like in Mortal Kombat 1, when you jump over a, a character, you don't turn in midair like you do in Street Fighter. Mortal Kombat 2, you can jump over a character, turn around, and then hit them with what's called a cross-up. Um, so they don't know which way to block. And um, that was actually a game that made that won over some Street Fighter 2 players. But uh, Capcom still felt that their game was superior and the, the rivalry actually spilled over to the home console territory. You know, Street Fighter 2 hit arcades in 1991, came to Super NES in 1992, Mortal Kombat 2 came to arcades in 92, and then came to home consoles in 93. Street Fighter, or Capcom was actually preparing updates to Street Fighter, such as Champion Edition, such as Super Street Fighter 2, hoping to, to take players back from Mortal Kombat and win them over with, you know, uh, Super Street Fighter 2's Q sound, better graphics, more new sound effects, that sort of thing. But Acclaim and Capcom kind of had a somewhat friendly rivalry where uh, I talked to Rob Holmes, who's never been interviewed about this before. He was the co-founder of Acclaim, and he was kind of the marketing brain behind uh, things like the the infamous Mortal Kombat commercial of all the kids running in the streets. And uh, he actually noticed that um, you know Capcom had a Street Fighter II comic, but their ads were open. So there's actually an issue of the Street Fighter II comic where every ad is for Mortal Kombat. <laughs> And uh, Acclaim, you know, Rob called uh, his uh, his peer at Capcom USA and was kind of like, gotcha, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> they would go back and forth. And they knew each other and they were friends, but it was also serious. Like Acclaim, Acclaim really wanted Mortal Kombat to be its big hit. And it was. I mean, the, the money from Mortal Kombat and then later NBA Jam allowed Acclaim to do things they'd never thought possible before. 
You know, one thing I always loved about Mortal Kombat as well is that it didn't feel like it, it took itself too seriously. There's a lot of tongue-in-cheek stuff in there, obviously, like, you know, mm. Johnny Cage's uh, nut punch. That was always amazing when you did that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But also one thing that, you know, particularly in the second game, you saw this more often, and you actually got a graphic of uh, Dan Forden coming in the corner of the screen when you did a, a really good uppercut, and you got a... Toasty! Toasty! Yeah, yeah that would always happen. <laughs> did you kind yeah. of find out the story behind Toasty? Because I was always curious about where that came from. I did. So Toasty kind of grew from an in-joke between Ed Boon and uh, Dan Forden. When they would play, just kind of hanging out at work, they would play like high impact or super high impact football, um, which I know Ed Boon actually programmed. That was the project he was working on while he and John Tobias were spitballing ideas for Mortal Kombat. Um, And one of them would say like, oh man, you're toast. I'm so good. And I'm just going to toast you, your toast. And then that, that eventually grew to them just using toasty as shorthand. When they'd start to play, one would go toasty and that kind of falsetto, just making them both laugh. And then um, Ed and John love Easter eggs, especially Ed. Ed, Ed uh, actually squirreled things into games that John didn't know about until he saw them in arcades. Because uh, Ed was the programmer. And, you know, back then programmers were kind of, considered gods like artists were important but a programmer was the one with his hands in the code anything he wanted to do he could do and nobody could really stop him um so you know toasty just kind of became you know they took a picture of 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 dan ford and slipped it in the game and they actually made it part of a code if you were playing two player on the portal stage you got a toasty the first player to hold down on their joystick and press their start button could go to goro's lair and fight smoke who made his debut as a secret character in that game uh, as did noob cybot and, and as did jade uh, so that was those were really cool stories to learn. So I, I was wondering, you know, there was um, less kind of blood in certain ports and versions of Mortal mm. Kombat. Was that a kind of system seller, and was there was there a battle to kind of get the best version of Mortal Kombat on different systems, and did it affect sales of consoles and stuff? I'm really glad you asked that. It's it's a great question, and it's something I'm proudest of uh, in Long Live Mortal Kombat. I, I got so many great stories from Rob Holmes and others from Acclaim. And Blood in Mortal Kombat was absolutely a deciding factor in the Sega Genesis version outselling the Super NES port 5 to 1. Rob Holmes told me stories about how uh, we actually talked about the development of Blood Code. Tom Kalinske, who was president of Sega of America at the time, he, he knew the game needed to be censored because by this time, you know, Congress was, was weighing in on violent games. And it was all over the news. And he was like, okay. We need the game to not have blood. But if you were to, say, slip in a secret code that enabled blood and brought back the, ar- the arcade fatalities, well, we would be fine with that. And Acclaim actually went to Nintendo and said, hey, we're doing this with Sega. How do you feel about a blood code? And Howard Lincoln, who was the chief counsel to Nintendo and a spokesperson for the company, said, nope, absolutely not. We stand by our family values. Uh, this version cannot have any blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, it was a claim who said, like, well, okay, what if we change it to sweat? And Nintendo was like, yeah, okay, fine. But they also had to change the fatalities. For example, you know, Sub-Zero, no head and spine rip. Instead, he froze the guy and uh, punched them, and they, they shattered into ice particles. Um, Raiden, instead of blowing off their head with lightning, he electrified them, and they turned into a pile of ashes with a skull on top. And Sculptured Software was actually the development studio in charge of the Super NES port, they had to run each fatality they came up with by a claim who had to run it by Nintendo and Nintendo would give their verdict to a claim who had to give it to sculptured software. So it was kind of a game of telephone. And um, when the mortal Kombat came out on home consoles, two things happened. One, the, the uproar around violent video games grew even hotter 
and louder because of the Sega Genesis version, but also Nintendo got stomped. I mean, like I said, Sega Genesis outsold the SNES version five to one. And that led to a, a meeting I don't think has ever been written about, which was at um, CES 1994 and involved um, heads of the biggest publishers at the time, including Nintendo, including Sega, including Acclaim, including Electronic Arts. Basically what happened was there was a lot of heated debate because all these guys were realizing like, hey, we're competitors. But by the time they kind of finished shouting at each other, they realized, you know what? One month ago, Mortal Kombat and, and Night Trap were, they took center stage at this hearing in front of Congress, which actually became kind of a theater for the next battle between Nintendo and Sega because their representatives were shouting at each other the whole time. And um, they realized, you know what? If we don't work together and figure out some way to rate these games, we're going to lose control of our industry because that's what Congress threatened. They said, either you rate your games or we'll do it for you. And Sega and Nintendo were never friends after that, but also everybody in that room realized we got to figure some way to kind of get along because if we lose control of our games, you know, we're, we're not going to have any artistic creative control. That's where the ESRB came from. And they also met at CES, which was, which also kind of viewed video games as the, the stepbrother to the stepbrother. You know, they were often just shunted off in corners. Nobody really cared about games. And so that, that conversation also led to, hey, what if we have our own trade show? And that's where E3 came from. So that was a huge conversation. And I documented it in Long Live Mortal Kombat. Well, David, I mean, we've been speaking for an hour and I feel like we've definitely only scratched the surface. You know, we haven't even <laughs> got to Mortal Kombat 2. It's like such a legendary series. And you've actually sent me a draft over of the book and, you know, it's already at like nearly 750 pages. So uh, yeah. I, I expect, you know, people who love Mortal Kombat are going to get so much out of these uh, three books that you're bringing out. So long live Mortal Kombat round one. Tell us a bit more about what we can expect from the book and uh, how people can get hold of it then. Absolutely. So long live Mortal Kombat round one um, is coming to Kickstarter on Tuesday, March 22nd. Um, you'll be able to get book in digital paperback or hardcover editions. Uh, the standard edition is just the book with the text, black and white, no photographs or anything like that. Very expensive to print. But there's another version called Ultimate Long Live Mortal Kombat Round 1, kind of a play on MK3 and Ultimate MK3, which is a larger book, coffee table style book with you know glossy paper, tons of full color photographs and screenshots, something that collectors will want to have on their shelves. And you'll be able to back that on uh, Tuesday, March 22nd. And like I said, um, in the meantime, for any news and updates, follow me on Twitter at DavidLCraddock.com or at DavidLCraddock <laughs> on Twitter. Well, David, your books are always impeccably researched, and this is a real, you know, the best love letter to Mortal Kombat I've ever seen so far, so I can't wait to see uh, the other volumes as well, and obviously we'll uh, we'll link up the, the Kickstarter when it goes live in our show notes and remind everyone when it's, uh, when it's there so people can back it, and uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing some memories of Mortal Kombat. It's been amazing chatting. Oh, guys, the pleasure's all mine. I always enjoy these chats. I can't believe an hour's already flown by, so thank you very much for having me. I always enjoy it as well.